Welcome to Functional Futures, a podcast where developers, compile creators, and PLT specialists talk about the future of functional programming. Today, I'm joined by Sasha Juric, who is a, a low-key legend of uh, Elixir community. He's a self-proclaimed Erlangalist and, uh, yeah, um, wrote a book about that subject of, of uh, using Elixir to achieve things, to make computers do things. And the book is really cool. And um, right now he is a, a an independent consultant, as far as I understand, right? Yeah, and today we're going to talk about um, Elixir from the standpoint of... Um, for, for me, it will be like coming back to it uh, after a big pause, uh, because I basically stopped really following what is happening uh, in Elixir closely around year 2015. <clears throat> but Sasha obviously um, wasn't still is uh, following quite some uh, news, speaking at the conferences and um, yeah, contributing maybe uh, some, some libraries and uh, things um, to, to the ecosystem and whatnot. Uh, yeah, we're, we're just waiting right now for um, people to gather. So Sasha, if you have something to add to my uh, X-Prompt uh, introduction, you can do that. Mm, well, th thank you, Jon, and uh, hi, everyone who, who is already uh, here present. Uh, so yeah, I guess I'm gonna gonna use this opportunity to introduce Jon, uh, who is uh, well uh, currently working for Seracle, right? Or you are basically one of the uh, founders. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. And Jon is one of the early adopters of Elixir, as far as I remember. I mean, we met uh, way back, uh, like something like 2013, if I remember correctly. 13. Yeah. So it was uh, still pre pre 1.0. Uh, uh, we kind of. Uh, Met at uh, we were together or we were separately but on, on the same event uh, Erlang event and then later Jan uh, was living here brief well for actually some time here in my home city and we had a lot of these informal chats about uh, Elixir and IT in general right <laughs> yeah so some are some are traditional uh, but uh, obviously due to a number of reasons we can't uh, follow our tradition yeah. today uh, we also resume that tradition yeah oh for sure yeah. Uh, yeah, but I, I don't think uh, YouTube or Twitch uh, even would uh, allow us to do to do what uh, what Croatian uh, uh, pubs allow us to do. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> yeah but, but you're gonna come back, uh, right? Of course, of course. It's like you can you can never really quit Croatia. I think. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> uh, but yeah, I think that we can start. And um, for people who are new to to Elixir. Um, which there are quite some, and especially among like developers in general, but also among Haskell developers. Um, let's very briefly talk about what is Elixir and why should people care about it. Like, what is what does what is the differentiator between Elixir and other uh, languages that are on the market? Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, Elixir is a programming language. Uh, it's a programming language that targets uh, Erlang virtual uh, machine uh, or compiles down to the same bytecode as uh, the Erlang programming language. There are a couple of other similar languages uh, which will maybe uh, mentioned during this uh, chat, uh, such as Gleam and others. Um, and uh, yeah, so you can in theory, of course, write uh, any kind of programs uh, with Elixir. 
but really where they shine, uh, where Elixir and these other languages shine, are uh, what they call software systems, right? And so what this means is uh, like uh, any kind of a backend, any kind of a web server, uh, databases, for example, would be good examples, of message queues. Uh, so uh, any sort of a piece of software that... Uh, once you start for the first time in production, you expect it to run continuously for a long amount of time, like, you know, a couple of years or uh, decades. And uh, during its lifetime, uh, this program is going to uh, do a bunch of different things. You know, a bunch of different independent tasks are going to be uh, executed. Like in a typical web server, you're serving requests, for example. This is the most obvious uh example but uh, other than just serving requests you're doing other kind of things like uh, running background jobs you know some kind of background processing maybe pulling some data off of the external tweet uh external feed like twitter or something like that uh maybe you're doing some periodical cleanups and uh those kind of things managing uh in memory state or uh, archiving stuff you know there's, there's a lot of Thing happening in any sort of a system and uh, what's uh, really special about this is that uh, these things are mostly mutually either independent or very loosely dependent uh, and uh, therefore the the program operates in shade of gray of success this is a very important point because uh, like when you think about a normal standard program that we learn uh, like you know you write hello world okay this, this is maybe too simple but when you write say a compiler you know compiler either succeeds or fails, you know, there, there is nothing in between. And uh, I mean, it can of course report compilation errors, but this is also success from the standpoint of the compiler. It detected some errors and reported, this is wrong and this is wrong, you know. Uh, but for a software system, you, you actually have these shades of gray of success, you know. So uh, like if there are thousands of us uh, accessing some server, and if it works for 999 of us, it's still mostly successful system, you know. Of course, it's not perfect, but uh, still provides a lot of the service. Uh, so uh, this is the core idea that you basically have this uh, continuous scale between doesn't work at all, which of course you don't want to have, and works perfectly for everyone all the time, which really, even in a remotely you know, complex system, is uh, hard to achieve. You know? So uh, essentially what everyone will tell you that uh, any sort of a system uh, is going to have some failures. Uh, but what you want to do is capitalize on the fact that uh, it's not a binary, you know, succeeds or fails. And uh, you therefore want to in increase or improve the chances of most things still working, right? So this is the particularity of software systems. And as it just so happens, uh, Elixir and, uh, well, fundamentally Erlang actually, uh, uh, is designed uh, to attack those kind of problems in a very systematical and predictable fashion. So it basically has like some building blocks, simple, pretty simple building blocks, but very powerful, very attuned to this particular kind of challenge uh, to allow us to, uh, you know, build the system in a way that we can separate failures of different activities such that, you know, most of the system is working when something goes wrong. Right. And um, for Haskell developer, uh, for Haskell developers, I'll let Sasha to, um, talk a little bit more about the differences, but uh, in my personal experience, uh, this is a drastic difference between how, how Haskell, for example, approaches the notion of correctness of, of system versus how, um, how Elixir or Erlang uh, uh, takes this approach. Because if you think about Haskell, okay, it, it, it 
kind of um, emphasizes that everything should be correct. And that means that only um, only states that that um, the system has to be in should be correct. And when there is an error, it has to be explicitly handled. But sadly, and it comes from basically what Sasha said, from, from the fact that we are working with complex systems, normally the errors that we're facing are emergent properties rather than some deterministic bugs that we wrote by negligence. And this is why uh, this kind of model where you... so And since it's emergent properties, these errors are kind of implicit within um, within within how you encode your Haskell programs. So you have to be uh, very rigorous and actually write very defensively if you want to 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 implement like um, a system that is very complex and that will run for a long long time in Haskell. Yeah. Uh, so this is for me like the biggest practical difference within what uh, um, within the framework that Sasha. Um, uh, uh, proposed, but uh, if you can uh, name like any theoretical maybe uh, differences between Haskell and Elixir for our Haskell listeners, which there are plenty, uh, please do. No, I think that you're uh, the authority on that one because you you work extensively with with both languages, right? So uh, I'm gonna take your word, but I just wanted to say something to add to this. I, I think that you really nailed it perfectly because the, the interesting thing about Elixir and Erlang uh, and those languages on Beam uh, on the Erlang virtual machine, right, is that you actually don't have to try too hard to build a, a resilient system. It doesn't really happen by magic, but it's not a lot of work. Essentially, you know, uh, defensive coding is sort of an anti-pattern uh, in uh, when you write an elixir. You actually pretty much want to have like uh, fast failures. Uh, this is what is known as let it crash, but uh, it's probably a, a bad uh, naming. You know, it confuses people. It pretty much means fail fast. Fail as soon as something is off. You know, you want to fail. But the whole idea is because you take this Erlang philosophy of, you know, splitting this huge system into a bunch of smaller independent programs, you know, so this comes through a lightweight concurrency, which we should probably explore a bit more. Uh, but when you do that, then, uh, you know, something fails, but it's not too big to fail. You, you essentially lose a small piece and everything else is working. And I remember from my first production, that like, you know, I did so many things wrong. I really didn't know what I was doing. Uh, you know, you have like this uh, frequent meme where the dog is typing on the keyboard and which says, I don't know what I'm doing. That's like basically me uh, <laughs> in my first online production. And, you know, I was like super surprised when uh, I would, you know, come to, to the work and take a look at logs and see a bunch of exceptions, but the system is still working and nobody reported anything, you know, and I remember, you know, like calling the support uh, people, like, are you sure there were no problems? Because, you know, I see a lot of stuff in logs, but, you know, I, I, so I'm confused. And I, I remember actually, uh, you know, figuring out that, okay, I need, I need to really understand how this is working. Why is my system working? It's supposed to be dead, you know? So that's when you appreciate uh, how much like a tool can do for you. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned concurrency. Maybe we should um, we should talk about that. And um, yeah, how how does actually Erlang virtual mm -hmm. machine achieve this? Um, right. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's a pretty simple idea, but I don't want to go into details too much. Uh, but uh, just so people can you know who are new to these languages who can understand, the, the essential idea is like pretty simple. Uh, you you basically have this massive lightweight concurrency where you can split the execution of the program into a bunch of independent uh, sub programs, so to speak, which we call processes. 
right? And so the process is not an OS process, uh, but it has a similar semantics because it's an independent program that uh, runs in uh, logical isolation from uh, other processes. It still runs in the same OS process, but otherwise it's completely isolated. Like you have two processes, each one has its own uh, stack and heap, its own memory space. And most notably, when a single process crashes due to an unhandled exception, then nothing else is taken down by default. Uh, so uh, everything else, else is still running. Uh, so the crash is uh, not an abrupt event, like say in Go, where you have these Go routines, and if you have an un undeferred panic in Go, then basically the entire program goes down. Uh, this, this is the complete opposite in Beam. Uh, and at the same time, this crash is not a silent event, right? So <clears throat> any other process in the system, any other program in the system can be notified about the crash of other things. And so you can build this fault tolerance pattern. You know, this is what Joe Armstrong, the creator of Erlang said. You basically, if you want fault tolerance, you always need more than one, right? So you need someone who does the job and someone who detects when the worker is not doing the job anymore. Maybe, you know, it's stuck, maybe it, it went down or whatever. And then this other thing, this other process can actually do something about it, right? And so that's essentially the idea. And of course, uh, it's worth mentioning that this concurrency is based on message passing, right? So these processes send themselves messages. Uh, like the analogy I frequently mention is it's kind of similar to microservices. Uh, you have like the same idea there. You have independent programs. They are communicating through some form of messaging, like whether through HTTP requests or maybe through some third party uh, queue. Uh, here you have like similar idea, except you use those lightweight processes. So you can run like uh, hundreds of thousands or millions of them uh, or hundreds of millions I think something like 100 million is a theoretical limit. And the, the, this messaging doesn't necessarily involve networking. So as long as you're on the single machine, then there is no networking involved. But otherwise, it's like a similar uh, principle. And yeah, I think I kind of covered, I don't know. Did you think I missed something? Yeah, well, uh, I think I think that's uh, all. I just want to emphasize for the viewers that uh, the message passing that happens when something crashes is exactly the same message passing that happens during normal operation, which is really cool. And uh, also something that uh, uh, for me was um, very amazing when when I first uh, touched uh, Erlang was in 2011 or something like that. It was that um even though it's like not very popular to industrially but like uh in principle you can basically create clusters of computers and join them together just with language just with like standard library uh it's it and start then start passing messages between them i mm. wrote uh back in the day just to get kind of my hands dirty with uh, erlang i wrote like a system that uh sends notifications uh, between phone, computer, like everything that was in my home lab. Uh, in Erlang, it was like distributing these notifications. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I, I, I used to have notifications enabled back then. I didn't know better, but yeah. Um, so it's it's really cool. Um, and I think that is basically it. And uh, Yeah, yeah. and it's somehow cool that basically everything revolves around concurrency, right? So concurrency is like the basis for building fault tolerance, for building scalable systems, like vertically scalable, uh, so they can be they can use all the CPU cores and then you can scale a larger machine. 
And then it's also the, the basis for uh, horizontal scaling for distributed computing. Uh, so you basically use the same programming model. I mean, obviously the challenges are different when you're running on multiple machines, but still most of the code is kind of uh, agnostic of the fact that you're actually using like one machine or X uh, of them. Yeah, yeah. You, so, you certainly can even, if, if we're talking about like in the industrial setting, you can certainly even like split kind of teams into people who are writing business logic versus people who are thinking about, okay, how, how do we actually deploy it in a scalable way that we can upscale and downscale? And um, um, yeah, that's 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 really cool. So uh, yeah, we can, I think, move on to like kind of discussing the state of Elixir uh, right now, but to, to discuss the state of Elixir right now, uh, we should actually talk about how you know how how did it how did it come into existence? Uh, how did we go from Erlang and this amazing property that we're discussing right now to 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 Elixir? Like, why do you need anything else if we already have these properties, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, as far as I recall, I think that on the very first Elixir Conf US, uh, Jose gave a keynote, kind of explaining some of those ideas. I'm going to try to summarize them uh, as best as I can. Uh, I think like the, the gist of the story is that Erlang uh, Erlang is terrific uh, as a language, and uh, I mean uh, the whole this whole model basically exists because of Erlang and uh, the, the runtime layer is uh, particularly uh, the source of the magic here. Uh, that being said, especially back then, so like when we're talking about the thing, Jose started writing uh, Elixir in like 2011. Uh, I started using uh, Erlang in 2010, so that's a little bit before that, and. You know, it has like these fantastic parts and then maybe some not fantastic parts. Uh, I would say that most notably the language uh, was, and I would say still is, uh, maybe too simple. Uh, that's kind of, uh, you know, many people think that uh, Elixir is like simpler language because it looks more familiar in the syntax, but actually Erlang is simpler, uh, much simpler in my opinion. But, you know, simplicity also comes with at the cost of expressiveness, right? Because uh, then... I found it hard in practice to kind of flush out some boilerplate and organize my, my code uh, as much as I wanted to. I tried some tricks, but, uh, you know, never really was happy with that. Uh, if you want to take this to a logical extreme, you know, assembly is super simple, right? But, uh, you know, you don't want to really write uh, as, uh, real, some complex code in assembly unless you can help, unless you really need to. So, uh, yeah, the, I would say that's one part of the story. Uh, the tooling was, uh, especially back then, uh, like substandard, you didn't really have like some default or blessed way to build uh, your uh, applications. And uh, there was, a, I don't think that there even was a, some sort of a package manager. So oh, yeah, I'm, I'm very sorry to interrupt, but like uh, the first thing that I, I wrote some Erlang code and the first thing that was really puzzling for me is how do I run it? <laughs> it was very exactly. confusing. There is no main function. Like, what do I do, you know? Mm, yeah, yeah, and uh, there, there was, there were no like, there were a couple of these third-party projects, but it wasn't like clear whether you should use like this or that, and uh, different people argued uh, for different things. I remember that I actually brought something on my own, which was backed by Ruby. You know, it, it was like pretty, pretty, you know, unclear. So I think that Jose set out to like, uh, Jose basically decided like, okay, this Erlang, this is some great stuff. This is fantastic stuff, especially you know. Uh, he had some experience trying to solve concurrency 
problems in rails if i remember correctly with you know traditional uh, models of locks and whatnot so he, he figured like okay this is really the way to go but i'm missing some things there so you know i'm going to try something which is uh, maybe gives me you know more expressiveness in the language and better tooling and uh, which is like more approachable for a developer so to speak because i i would say that that's my personal view but i think that like uh, erlang was kind of not super approachable uh in, you sort of had to find your way and uh, experiment a lot. It wasn't really clear about uh, you know how you should do a bunch of different things. So yeah, that's how I would explain it, and uh, that's uh, what I think is was the origin and the aim of Elixir to be so somehow you know uh, more more focused on developer productivity uh, and assisting developers than uh, Erlang back then. From that time, I, I feel that over time Erlang has you know uh, taken some inspiration from Elixir and uh, of course obviously vice versa. Yeah. Um, so, actually, it's it's maybe maybe we can hop into the present for for a second, and and I'll ask you that question. So, would you say that right now, uh, when we have like purely Erlang projects, like for example, I I had to write some Erlang like I don't know last year, and uh, I was using Rebar three for everything. Uh, how how would you say uh, are Integrate how how well integrated like mix infrastructure is with with Erlang right now. Did it like deprecate everything? You know how how does it go right right now? What do you say? Yeah, to be to be honest, I have no clue. I re I recall like maybe two years ago I read like people mentioned that it was a bit problematic compiling Elixir uh, when like when you have an Erlang project and then you want to compile some Elixir stuff that uh, there were some challenges. But I think there was some rebar plugin anyway, and I, I I'm not really sure. Uh, What's the state of that? Uh, the other way around, it definitely goes. So, like, you can pretty much integrate standard Erlang libraries, and you can write Erlang code, uh, uh, like have Erlang source files directly in your main project. Uh, so that's something that I don't, I'm not sure that everyone is aware of. I had uh, an experience of uh, when we were uh, back in my former company, we were switching from Erlang to Elixir at some point, and we had like a pretty like fairly complex project written in pure Erlang with you know some custom libraries, parse transformations and whatnot, something which is you know a bit off the beaten track. And it took me like maybe half a day to uh, just write a mix project which compiles this entire source files, source tree, and uh, the tests were passing and everything. So you know uh, that was definitely possible. Uh, yeah, and then I recall from my very first production, it was also uh, Erlang production. As soon as I discovered Elixir, I just threw in a couple of things. I did some hacky stuff to, to make it work, but it, it was definitely workable. So I'm hoping that today the state is better, but I don't really do Erlang for like now five years or so, like plain Erlang. I just uh, focused on Elixir. Right. Um, actually, it's it's maybe a testament to the, to the simplicity of the syntax, because uh, after a big pause, when I had to really quickly, I was basically doing like a, um, binary editing, for mm. for a capture the flag uh, uh, problem on on a, a ITSAC CTF, so like um, yeah. By the way, we we, we didn't t touch on that binary pattern matching. How amazing is that? Like uh, I, I I went through three hex editors that people are using, and they they just they just couldn't give me the tools that a uh, 15 line program in Erlang uh, did. And mm. uh, uh, yeah, since I was didn't really remember like how to do binary pattern matching in Elixir, I just took Erlang and my, just my fingers remembered like very quickly. So maybe mm. it is easier. 
um, in terms of oh, syntax? Well, yeah, Erlang is definitely, I think. Uh, it's, it's weird well, the first time you look at it, uh, right? Unless you did some prologue. <laughs> but it's, it feels uh, strange, I would say. But once you get used to it, it's like very simple, very regular, uh, no, no particular ambiguities. And uh, I would expect that, that, that like the, the syntax tree or the grammar is uh, definitely simpler than Elixir. You know, that's my guess, but I think it's like a good guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but uh, Elixir is, uh, is more complicated for a good reason. Like, it it, it supports such amazing macros, and like, yeah. I like to use this as an example. The Unicode module in kernel, right? It's uh, just beautiful. You know, it takes some text files, and you don't mm -hmm. have to maintain it at all. It just creates Elixir um creates a you know your uh, compiler code mm -hmm. by just taking like uh, Unicode standard. It's wonderful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we, we have like, we have a bunch of different examples where uh, it's it's just more expressive. So you can more elegantly do more complex stuff, which are possible, of course, in Erlang as well, but uh, it requires more. And so you have like these examples of say Ecto, which is a sort of like an uh, embedded SQL language or data mapping between databases. And uh, so you can write these kind of SQL-like queries directly in the language and they seem as if though they are a part of the language, but they're written with a macro. So uh, really what the macro system uh, does is it makes the language extensible and uh, it has been used by some prominent projects and more recently, uh, like I think in the last few days, uh, the NX project was uncovered, which uh, uh, moves into the machine learning territory at, at some uh, behind the scene uh, JIT compiling and running on GPU and whatnot. And this was done without basically any intervention in the language. So uh, I think like the language itself is uh, mostly, if we take a look at it from 1.0 to this point, you know, I just kind of reminded myself today, I was looking just through release notes. Uh, the language itself, if you talk about the syntax, there was just maybe one thing that was changed or added. Uh, it's mostly stable in the sense of the language, you know. Mostly they add like uh, standard library features or uh, improved tooling, like there is tooling for some release added something for uh, uh, drawing or displaying cross-references between modules. And then in another version, they maybe uh, improve the output of X units so you can better see the errors. So uh, a lot of the stuff is done on the quality of life, but the language itself is like pretty stable since 1.0. So this is a testament, uh, you know, to, and the macro system actually makes that uh, possible. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned some some changes uh, to, to Elixir releases. Uh, so if you had to like pick one of the most exciting feature of elixir ecosystem post 1.0 1.0 what would you what would you pick oh this this one is really hard uh, so <laughs> um well i would say that uh hmm, may, maybe the the official support for otp releases that one was pretty big uh, oh yeah uh and then the registry so registry is something that i was you know, personally men saying like we should have the registry support. Uh, so for those who are, who are not aware, like what, what register means is, like I talked about, you have these processes and very often you want to name those processes in a dynamic kind of way. And this is what registry is for. Uh, so uh, typically the, those were done through some third party projects, but then you always had to add those projects. And uh, what Elixir does is it introduces this registry as a native part of the standard library, you know, it's, uh, so you basically don't have to deal with that, and it's something that I use uh, very, very frequently. Mm, the formatter, that, that's kind of an interesting thing. So I was uh, personally against uh, formatting. Uh, 
because I think that uh, I like the, the style format, right? The code formatting. So I was I, I was not a fan of those things because uh, I think that like it kind of uh, limits your creativity and how are you going to express yourself. But now that I, I have been working with it, you know, I really think that it uh, it works uh, wonders and basically the good outweigh the bad stuff by far. So there are some occasional cases where, where I don't like what formatter does with my code. But then the good point that, that Jose made when he was introducing this is that like if your code looks uh, bad after formatting, then you probably need to refactor something. Like maybe like the example I think he gave was like you have 10 parameters in a function. And then the formatted code looks bad, but you really don't want to have the function accepting 10 parameters. You know, you should refactor to uh, accepting some kind of structured data and things like that. So uh, this is one which is kind of uh, seems not particularly significant, but actually has a pretty good uh, quality of life. Yeah, that's 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 cool because, uh, for example, again uh, in Haskell community, we 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 very like to you know make, you know make like one thing five times and then publish it on Hackage. So, and the same goes for like uh, code formatting standards. Like, uh, I mean, to be completely honest with you, I think we have in our company a standard, but I'm not sure what it is. And I'm just using VS Code Formatter. And I literally installed VS Code mm. just so that I can co collaborate for, with my uh, on my pet projects with other people and have a reasonable degree of assurance that that I will not break uh, patches, uh, mm -hmm. like you know, that I will not have noisy patches, basically. And what's funny is that immediately after I had to edit some of the Sorocco's code, and I had extremely noisy patches. So mm. <laughs> that's yeah, that just yeah, saves yeah, a lot uh, of time. I think that that's a pretty good point. That you basically, you know, like you have such such tooling that can enforce stuff automatically for you, and then you can actually focus on the real. Uh, Problems, you know. Part of the reason I was opposing to formatters is because, like, it's you know, your code will not be significantly readable after it's formatted unless you're really writing terrible layouts. Uh, but you know that the readability problem comes from like design, proper types, proper abstractions, and the formatter cannot handle this. But uh, the thing that I missed is like uh, without the formatter, then you end up arguing a lot about you know should this be in line should this be multiple lines and stuff like that and you lose your energy on that uh and once you you have the tooling for this then you just you know goes out of the way uh so for my current clients uh very big things uh, when i joined uh, when i started working with them uh i basically actually introduced a bunch of you know these small tools like formatter then there is this credo tool which is like a linter um and so we, we use a bunch of this stuff to automatically enforce uh the the guides the style guide. So the style guide is basically like two pages. Uh, one of those pages or one and a half is uh, explaining how to set up Credo and <laughs> things like that. So these tools. So basically, it's just tool enforced. So this is this is pretty cool. Right. And as far as far as I could tell, again, I, I'm not entirely sure, but it seems like it has pretty good integration with VS Code, for example, which apparently yeah. is something that. I mean, it has a nice Vim uh, mode, so uh, it's okay to mm -hmm. use it if, if you're not against Microsoft. All right, and uh, what about Beam? Uh, what what happened uh, uh, to it in the in the in the past five years? As far as I heard, uh, there is just-in-time compil compilation right now, and it sounds pretty huge. What are your yeah, just in time? You're you're just in time for the just-in-time compilation. I think it's officially going to land in. Uh, what three months in May or something like that in the next version, but it's basically there already to be 
to be explored. Uh, I think they were otherwise doing, you know, different kind of minor improvements in from version to version. Uh, but yeah, I would say that like uh, JIT is the big news. Uh, so from what I've read, uh, I think that they, they mentioned something like uh, from maybe 30% to more than 100% of speed up depending on the on on different uh, cases they have tried out yeah uh, their blog post their blog post says 30 to 130 but just for 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 our viewers maybe you will talk a little bit about what is just in time compilation and whatnot like uh yeah in, in two so, words uh, th that's a that's a pretty difficult question because as far, as far as i remember from reading that blog they actually don't do like the standard just in time compilation right. they actually uh, they don't do like the tracing and stuff like that. Yeah. So uh, they, they basically compile, but uh, ultimately it boils down to the fact that they are compiling it natively, right? To to the native code. Uh, that's the gist of it. So prior to that, the code uh, before JIT, the code is, or without JIT, the code is interpreted constantly. So you basically compile your uh, code down to some bytecode and uh, which is beam specific. And then you have the beam interpreter, uh, you know, just running through that, and it essentially takes it to the native level, so uh, it can speed things up. Uh, prior to JIT, uh, or we still have, you know, this thing called Hype, High Performance Erlang, which was kind of a mixed bag. You know, sometimes it yielded good results, other times uh, actually made things worse. And as far yeah, as it's I kind remember, of like C, C Python or PyPy, like this is Hype approach, as far as I understand. Yeah. Yeah. As far as I remember, then not all the things were possible with Hype, and JIT should should shouldn't JITing shouldn't actually drop any guarantees. Uh, so uh, anyway, the, the long story short is like why why are we excited about this? Because uh, Beam languages are historically not really known for their speed when it comes to processing. So they're not like super fast. Most of the time really doesn't matter. So you still have like pretty pretty fast operations and uh, uh, you know, with their support for concurrency and everything, they can give you some, this whole different dimension. Uh, other, otherwise, when we talk about sequential program, if you like are able to do proper uh, technical optimizations and algorithmical optimization, you can pretty much boil it down to the level where it doesn't matter, you know? so like. I didn't. I never did like uh, proper measurements, but my you know gut feeling is that Beam language will be something like 10x or maybe even more than that, slower than say C. But you know, if we're talking about like, is it going to be one microsecond on zero point one microsecond? Really, most of the time, that that's like completely irrelevant. Yeah, but you have to have also prowess to to like, for example, with uh, Elixir script, right? Uh, it 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 loads very slowly. Like it literally, like it it just like loads the computational environment very slowly and if you if you mm, don't set up your release correctly because like I, I was doing this benchmark actually like a couple of years ago for something then then you can have like very big uh, performance penalty if you don't strip down your kind of release to only the things that you need Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, precisely, precisely and depends on what you're measuring but ultimately when it comes to like sequential processing when you have like some fast iteration, you know, it's going to be much faster in C or in, in, even in Go or uh, those kind of languages. Uh, so JIT should definitely bring us closer to uh, those languages to the point where, uh, you know, I feel that still when, when you really care about squeezing every single ounce, every single, you know, like nanosecond, you will still have to do that critical path maybe someplace else. Uh, 
But for many cases, uh, I feel that, you know, JIT should be just uh, good enough. So, and that's, uh, it's always worth remembering that performance is just one part of the story. So it's not just about ultimate speed, but it's about like stable progress. You know, I was explaining this. I had, I gave this talk two years ago, about two years ago called Solo Verlang and Elixir, where I explain, you know, uh, some properties. So like, for example, beam schedulers, they do like preemptive context switching, you know? So what this means is like, if you have one program, which is stuck in a loop, like while through semicolon, you know, just spinning around, it's not gonna block anything else because it being frequently con does this context switching. So the system progresses at a stable pace. Uh, in Go, for example, such program would actually block your scheduler. So if you have like, uh, I don't know, five schedulers and you have five of those coroutines, then you essentially end uh, being completely paralyzed. Uh, uh, which won't, will not happen in Beam. So it's not just about speed, it's also about safety, you know, and uh, having like some uh, reasonable uh, scheduling resources distribution for everyone. Yeah, it's actually interesting um, to uh, to also consider the fact that uh, like there's this GRISP project, mm -hmm. um, which, is, uh, uh, which is basically Erlang it, uh, stripped down uh, as much as possible to first of all be able to be ran as a um, uh, single process like real-time operating system on and second of all just being able to run on hardware overall you know and uh, uh, they have their own standard library but it's what is very interesting is that they don't have like they don't bring all the runtime because you don't really need the you don't really have like two cores on embedded, right? But uh, what they what they bring is they bring kind of OTP patterns. So basically, now uh, when you are programming your uh, like, you can actually program like um, some controller for for a motorbike that that is controlling like injection of fuel or something with this. And actually, what their argument is is that um, by stripping that stuff down and and just having OTP uh, uh, concepts, they make sure that failure will be um, um, kind of that that what, what we talked about before. Even even in like the sort of hardware systems, failure will be caught, and failure will be uh, handled, and uh, no bicycle uh, sorry bikes will explode on on track mm -hmm. or something like that. So it's interesting how how there are different people taking this notion like in different ways and and still like kind of taking something out of uh, Erlang. Uh, Mm. Um, uh, infrastructure, yeah, and there was this also very like sadly dead project, um, uh, Erling or something like that. Do you remember uh, when Ling. they when they Ling. ran? Yeah, 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 when they ran like Erlang on Zen. Yeah, that was exactly. also very interesting. Yeah, that one was pretty cool. Uh, as far as I remember, uh, they they like basically rewrote their own uh, uh, runtime over Erlang. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. For that, but it was pretty pretty interesting idea. Yeah, but but I mean, you know, like Erlang has this idea. We we often say that it's like a operating system for our code because it's really what it is. Like you have you even have Erlang chips with its own internal top toad. You know, like you start top and then you see like what you see in standard Linux, for example, when you see like those processes and their usage sorted. I don't know by reduction and uh, and whatnot. So uh, it's really it gives you. OS-like features directly in the in the code, and so you can manipulate uh, those features uh, directly from the code, right? Which is pretty cool because uh, uh, 
there are less there's less need to step outside and like to you know run a bunch of completely independent programs and then tie them together with system d and uh whatnot which uh complicates the story uh, much more significantly. You know, here you have actually everything from within the single project. You know, I just started project, everything is running, like background jobs are running, uh, uh, periodic jobs are running and whatnot. I can test that stuff very easily because everything is just in there in the same project. And uh, I don't need to learn other things, new things, because, you know, everything is expressed with standard Erlang or standard Elixir, whichever language you're using. So it actually requires much less of uh, additional technical uh, knowledge. You know, it lowers the bar in a good way. So uh, reasoning about this, implementing this is, in my view, much simpler than your standard microservices, uh, which, you know, really just explode in terms of uh, technical complexity. Oh, yeah. And actually, to an extent, uh, I... I... I was uh, during NixCon um, in 2015. I was talking to um, um, a uh, person who who was doing uh, well, basically operations like IT operations in 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 one of the huger uh, music hosting uh, services. I wonder which one. And um, he was saying that uh, basically at, at his work they are using Nix um, to. For the first time in a while, be able to know what do they have running in terms of microservices and what will happen if they, you know, take some of them down. And mm. I, I have a feeling if it was like 100% Erlang code base, then you just, you, don't, you know, you just look and it will draw you like visually even uh, mm. what is going on with your clusters and whatnot. Precisely, you, you can fire up this observer thing, which ships with uh, with a standard Erlang. It just gives you a GUI. This gives you this nice tree, and you can like really see a nice visualization of what you have running. And I mean, yeah, this for me is the dream. You know, like uh, I want to build as much of the stuff as I can as a monolith. So this is a single project. You know, a single. It's not a single binary. It's a folder structure. But you know, there is a, the single artifact which you deploy. You start it, and everything is running from within that. And I want to have that uh, as much as I can. And uh, if for whatever reasons we can't have that, then it means that the tools are not developed enough that we that we have some room for uh, improvement, you know, uh, so we can reduce the need to run multiple OS processes side by side. Yeah, yeah. Actually, um, for for me, for me as well, I'm I'm I'm. I have this philosophy that okay, sometimes we, we need clusters. Okay, sometimes we even need heterogeneous clusters when where different servers have different roles. But okay, I can still kind of at worst kind of manage it from one umbrella project. At best, I can just manage it in from the same project and just launch different code paths depending on on what is the capability that the server is providing. Precisely, this is what I advise to to some other clients. You know, they they were came to me with this proposal about microservices, what they want to do, and I said like. Okay, why don't you just you know put everything in a single project, not umbrella, regular project, and you know just set environment variable. What do you want to start in development? Everything starts by default, and uh, now you have like a development starting is super easy. Uh, testing becomes easy, like these integration style tests when you wanna verify how different uh, like uh, different parts of this uh, interact together. You, you can get this like reproducible on a local machine with. No, with practically zero infrastructural support, you don't need to run, I don't know, some kind of a Redis or Red CD and whatnot. So uh, it, it makes sense, you know, sure, you're shipping, I don't know, some 
megabytes more to every machine, but seriously, unless you're doing with embedded or some very restrained environment, this shouldn't be a problem. Right. Um, let's talk about, well, since you're doing consultancy, you know way more about that, I think, uh, uh, than, than, you know, just uh, uh, being like a, a software developer going to a job. So maybe you, you, you know more uh, about like demographics of uh, Erlang and Elixir these days, uh, namely Elixir. Like, uh, is that like 90% Phoenix crowd? Uh, Phoenix is like a web framework, which is actually really good. We, we, we should talk about it a little bit later. Or is it like 50-50? Is it people who are uh, coming from Ruby? Is it Erlangers? Mm. How's, how's it going right now? Well, I mean, it's, it's really hard for me to draw them. I don't have such a large sample. Yeah, but uh, most people doing Elixir are doing it uh, with Phoenix. Or, well, I'm not going to say most, uh, but a lot of people doing Elixir do it with Phoenix. Typically, when someone approaches me, there is some sort of Phoenix uh, kind of interface uh, involved. Uh, I would say that my impression is that uh, Elixir is more popular these days than Erlang. Uh, more recently, we had like, I think maybe two, three days ago, I've seen that uh, Elixir actually came to the TOB index uh, 50 lists. And I'm gonna, I wanna say, personally, I really don't care much about these uh, shallow matrices, uh, these shallow vanity indices. That being said, it's nice to to actually see it as a sort of a validation that people are using Elixir more and more, and that's kind of my subjective impression. Also, from you know watching forums and uh, other kind of knowledge exchange places. So yeah, uh, definitely feels that Elixir is uh, you know getting some stable traction. Not like explosive as I don't know Go or JavaScript, but you know it feels that it's uh, it's definitely growing uh, steadily. Um, and um, would you say that um, when you're dealing with with other with other people's code bases, would you say that um, people on average kind of understand the philosophy of 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 underlying computational model, or or would you say that there are problems? I'm asking because when I was just starting, um, it felt like Erlang was felt very compact, so I wrote my first like kind of high performance thing, like high throughput thing in like two weeks from when I first like started from my first look at, at like Erlang.org or org, right? Uh, but then I looked, then I showed it in IRC on the channel and they said, okay, you, you have to, you can't do this. It, it will just break and you won't recover. You, 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 you have to use, you have to use spawn link and you have to use OTP. So then I went and read and there was just no, other way for me to express myself except for following best practices and kind of like understanding mm. you know how you know how how scheduling works and everything so do, do you think that it's it's a problem or do you think it's okay this is definitely a problem i think that this is like the most the biggest problem it's, it's been a problem for me and uh most of the time that i see it's it's kind of like uh, you know uh so I don't want to say it's hard because uh, it's not hard and I'm going to, you know, this is the hill I'm going to die on. Uh, OTP in this concurrency is not hard, but it's something that uh, we are basically not used to. You know, I, I, there's nothing like it. I don't know anything like it. Maybe if you're coming from uh, Scala and Dhaka, uh, which took a lot of inspiration from uh, Erlang slash OTP, then maybe it will be familiar to you. But most of the time it actually, those 
patterns are not familiar to you. And then you kind of use the previous knowledge and try to uh, kind of work on top of that. And uh, then you inevitably end up in anti-patterns, uh, basically, uh, you know, maybe not properly taking care of, you know, proper cleanup in a supervision tree or race conditions or stuff like that. So it's not hard. It's just something you have to get used to. Uh, I guess the good news, though, is that uh, OTP is very forgiving. So even when you do things wrong, uh, it will not take your system down, as I've seen it myself uh, many times. Uh, and otherwise, it's like I find it pretty intuitive to think about uh, in terms of this message passing as well as supervision hierarchy, which is basically just a top-down view of your uh process tree you know like uh, you say this my system consists of say a backend and a front end and backend consists of a database and some sort of a, a consumer and some periodic job and front end consists of this endpoint which uses on the http and that one which listens on the so it's like a, a top-down breakdown uh, of uh, what your system consists of and you just have to pay attention that like uh, whenever something stops you want everything that is underneath it to stop so uh, those are kind of, it's, it's not very hard, but people are definitely being confused. So this is something that as a community we have to uh, work on, you know. And would you say that, would you say that um, kind of more high level frameworks uh, and, and, and things like this contribute to, to this obscurity of underlying concepts? Or would you say that it would be the same if Erlang was as popular as Elixir? Oh, so, yeah, that's definitely an aspect that I forgot to mention. This is a really, really good uh, point. So uh, the, the curious thing is that I think Elixir really makes things easier there. Uh, well, it makes it easier because in the sense that, like, you have uh, stuff such as Phoenix and Ecto and other kind of uh, these uh, high to medium level frameworks slash libraries, a lot of the time for, like, simpler scenarios, you don't even have to think about this. It's just taken care of for you, you know, so in, in, a, in a good way. Uh, and so this is pretty cool. Like even for my main clients for very big things, you know, uh, somewhat surprisingly, you know, I, I built like a, a recommended literature for new people coming to Elixir. And I didn't include my own book because my own book focuses on concurrency and OTP. And uh, essentially the kind of, for the kind of systems they are building, this is not so, so much needed. You know, most, most of the time you can get by with like uh uh, Phoenix, uh, Ecto, and uh, AppSynth, which is used for GraphQL. So occasionally there is some need for a little bit of concurrency, but not so much. So, you know, I didn't really, uh, I didn't come and say, like, you should read my book. I actually come and said, like, you probably don't need to read my book unless you actually need to deal with concurrency. So uh, in a sense, Elixir or its ecosystem uh, hides away a lot of that stuff. Obviously, it's a double-edged sword because then you are not forced to learn it. Uh, and so once you need to deal with it, it's kind of, you know, it feels alien uh, for you. Yeah. Interesting take, yeah. Um, and I think I think we can kind of um, uh, talk a little bit about what are you working on uh, yourself right now, or where you work, uh, or you were working last year. Like I've have seen some exciting tweets about um, some um, kind of OTP esque concepts that that people should well might want to consider. So mm. you might talk about that stuff uh, a little bit before yeah, so we start have, talking about the future of Elixir. I have like three three 
sort of main open source projects I'm kind of currently looking at, maybe four, yeah, I should actually take a look at my own GitHub repo. Uh, so I'm just gonna briefly go through those. Uh, one of them is uh, called Parent, and it basically explores uh, somewhat different take on this hierarchy of processes. It's basically uh, pretty similar to standard supervisors that we use, but it gives kind of more programmatic power to supervisors. So like the problem is, uh, well, what we have is we have supervisor, uh, which is an abstraction that basically watches on other workers and restarts them, and otherwise stops them and uh, starts them if needed. Uh, but you cannot really add some custom logic into that. And so parent is kind of like a lower level building block that actually lets you build custom parent processes. You can build supervisor and it ships with one uh, out of the box and uh, otherwise you can build other kind of uh, things. This is something that, that I needed in uh, various different uh, cases. So it also explores different kind of uh, dependency management between processes. So yeah, I'm not gonna go into all those details, but I think it's a kind of interesting take and so far, as much as I've been using it, I'm kind of uh, happy with it. Um, another project is called Site Encrypt, and uh, this is basically a Let's Encrypt certification. And uh, in itself, I think it's important because it sort of showcases uh, the style, the idea that I that I want to see more built in Erlang. And this is the, the fact that we can build more stuff directly in Beam without needing anything external. So uh, when we talk about the... Uh, SSL certification, like if you're building it with some other language, uh, typically what's advised is you install a third-party tool called CertBot or something. There's CertBot and there are other tools. And then this tool will obtain your certificate for you. And so now you have to run something else on the side. You also have to install Python for that and whatnot. So it, it complicates the story. And uh, I figured that like, since we're in Beam, we don't really need all that, you know, so we can run the certifier program directly as part of our application. And this is what Site Encrypt does. You edit as a library, fill in a couple of blanks, and uh, you have uh, basically within your project, you have this process running, which will obtain your certification and integrate with your Phoenix endpoint uh, automatically. So it just works out of the box. The cool thing is that it also ships with a development slash test time uh, server, mock server. So like your, when you start thinking locally, you're running your local uh, Let's Encrypt, so to speak and uh, the, the, your program, your site self-registers locally as well as in tests. So you can actually test some uh, some stuff about that. And you don't need to run anything on the site, right? So this is pretty cool. You just uh, add a library, fill in a couple of blanks, and you're good to go. Everything is running. No impedance mismatch or anything. So th this is a, you know, as a library, it's a small example, but it's an example of stuff that I would like to see more. Push more stuff into, you know, Elixir and Erlang. Yeah. I have a very brief question about that. Uh... So, yeah, normally the, the pattern is right is, is run certbot, run nginx, and then run your thing um, over plain yeah. HTTP, listening only to localhost and then reverse proxy, mm. uh, which comes with, with some issues. But in general, it's like, okay. Uh, so does it mean that uh, with your approach, you also like like you also use like Cowboy uh, TLS? Yes. Like, yes. Do you, so. Oh wow, that's so cool. Yeah, so you can see it on my blog. My blog is basically just you know plain Elixir directly on the internet. So there is uh, there is no nginx or anything in between, uh, and yeah, it uses uh, Cowboy's uh, SSL, which I mean you get uh, through Phoenix. You just set some flag and that's it. 
and the site certifies itself you know i would just push this to production and just be working occasionally i remember like every few months or so i'm just gonna check is my certificate still valid and i just see it it just is valid you know uh, and it simplifies the deployment story tremendously right so all of a sudden you don't have to add like nginx and certbot and whatnot so everything is directly in there uh, the library also periodically you know creates this tarball and puts it on some shared folder which then goes you know it's backed up and stuff like that it's like so so simplifies this story it essentially brings the operations part back to the development for me this is truly a devops if you will you right know, because and all of that is testable uh, so that's a cool cool stuff yeah it's even it's even more it's even more dev like for example wins oracle we were like fighting hard to instill proper devops methodology and infrastructure as code uh but uh, you know if you're if your programming language is lets you program your operating system right and and mm. your and your stuff runs in, in this operating system then basically what you get is uh you can is then your devops is also written in the same language which is which is beautiful mm. i think I, I, I never even thought about it like in these categories and i mean it simplifies the story and it actually makes it more accessible to everyone like say everyone on the team knows elixir then they immediately know all the technical prerequisites to work on that part uh, whereas if you have some proprietary yaml you know, most people are just going to ignore that. You always end up on a team, you know, there is like a circle CI specialist, a Travis specialist, you know, specialist for this kind of YAML, that kind of YAML, and no one really wants to touch that, you know, other than uh, those people. And that kind of uh, uh, sucks, you know, but if uh, everything is expressed in like uh, your regular language and you can reproduce it locally rather than I'm going to change some YAML, push it to that black box and see if that you know works uh, so if you can do this locally you can code and you can see immediate feedback then it's much easier and everyone is uh, going to be more inclined to contribute to, to, yeah. to... We're, we're trying to achieve similar things with nix but it's very difficult to to, to get people excited mm. about programming in nix because i think <laughs> yeah. it has this like it has this like vibe of of being a language to just define like a package, like some something like your package build from Arch Linux thing, where it's really not. Uh, mm. I don't know. Yeah, but we're trying to do this to, to do kind of the same. To, if so, if you know Nix, then you will uh, you will basically treat this infrastructure really as code, not as configuration. And 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 I really think that what you described with with playing with with YAML configs is 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 that it's like like not a real devops mm, yeah this is to me horrible it's very clumsy very error prone and uh yeah i'm not, I'm not really a fan of that so th this is kind of uh we can sort of tie this to to the point you wanted to bring next so to the future of erlang this is where i would like to see uh erlang and elixir take off in that kind of direction i mean they are already there in many ways so like I frequently mentioned, you, you can really compare to other languages, especially scripting languages like, uh, say, Ruby or uh, uh, Python or JavaScript. Uh, you can really simplify the, the deployment, reduce the amount of moving pieces. Uh, like uh, you don't necessarily need Redis, for example. You may use it, but you can get away without it. Uh, for periodic jobs, you can... Uh, you can do something very lightweight directly in the beam instead of you know re reaching for cron or uh, or system d or something like that uh so this is where i'd like to see the story evolve even further like if you ask me i would like to see a native database written in uh, elixir like an sql database 
we already have a precedent of a thing called Nisia, which is a key value database written in Erlang. So it's, it's not something unheard of. It's a lot of effort, but it would be cool if you could actually start your database as a part of your entire system. You just have your supervision tree and you know, I'm going to run this server and I'm going to run this database, uh, which runs directly in there. Uh, I, I would like to see parts of Kubernetes, uh, you know, uh, provided as a, as a library uh, in Erlang or Elixir. And this is also not unheard of, right? If you, you remember React Core, for example, so it kind of had... Some of those, it's if you squint a lot, it's sort of similar. Yeah. But basically, the idea was there. You have like a bunch of computational uh, resources, machines, and then uh, this layer sp spreads the load across uh, across that. So uh, this is something that could definitely be done on top of uh, distributed uh, Erlang. Obviously, you know, it uh, also takes a lot of effort, but it could simplify the story uh, as well. So. Uh, I would like to see stuff moving there. So uh, just to, to you know wrap up with what you asked me what I'm doing. Uh, another thing that I started this year is called CI. It's like continuous integration toolkit as Elixir library. So this one is uh, inspired by the actual work I did for my previous company where we built our own CI uh, as uh, with Elixir. And this was by far the best CI I have ever worked on because it involved zero YAML and it was very expressive and you could program it in Elixir as opposed to, you know, these ad hoc, uh, non-Turing uh, non complete languages. And so now I'm trying to build it in a, in a, you know, our implementation was of course pretty ad hoc and everything. So it wasn't open sourceable. Now I'm trying to actually provide it as an open source thing. So it's already there on GitHub, very basic, but uh, I have some ideas about this. So in general, as I said, I would like to see uh, the whole community try to push towards uh, this this uh, ecosystem where we can, you know, do a bunch of stuff directly in Elixir or Erlang without needing to run multiple processes and needing to, you know, use microservices style. Yeah, uh, it, it makes sense. And it's actually really interesting how, like, um, I, I, I wrote a post um, last year, I think, about the history of Erlang and Elixir. And um, um, I, I, I quoted uh, Jesper Lewis Anderson, uh, his uh, memes about X is basically Y, right? So, uh, you know, I wrote stuff like Erlang's message passing is basically AMQP, which is a very in line. It's like ironic, right? But but this is what you what you're saying, right? It's totally implementable within within this um, um, this framework. Um, um, well, framework broadly speaking, obviously. Um, mm. All right, I think we, we should talk very, very, very briefly about um, the kind of cutting edge news uh, with obviously NX um, and, um, and talk a little bit about, um, uh, about uh, nerves, uh, just mention it, how, and the context I want to, to talk about it and while we talk about the future of Elixir is that, um, there might be something like from Facebook or from a huge actor that will bring, let's say, proper static typing, maybe to just mm -hmm. um, uh, beam uh, to, to a language that can pass to beam just to modules. Maybe they will manage to type message passing as well. And that will, in my, in my eyes, uh, bring the best parts of Haskell, which is something that uh, I think has a very big place in, in in computer programming to, to make sure that your stuff is correct, bring it to um, Erlang and 
in my eyes, again, make Elixir basically obsolete. But mm. what is beautiful about what Jose is doing is that I think they are like vendor unlocking themselves from this kind of, you know, Phoenixy, cruddy uh, stuff by doing NX and um, and uh, some other people are, are doing nerves uh, for IoT. So you can very briefly talk about these things and mm. your opinion about it. Yeah, this definitely opens up some new possibilities. So NX, uh, for uh, those who are not familiar, it's just been announced like two, three days. I mean, Jose was teasing us about it uh, uh, for a long time uh, on Twitter, but we didn't really know. You could kind of guess maybe what could it be. And I think that most of the guesses I've seen were like basically on target. It's uh, like essentially pushing Elixir, uh, opening the, this new direction into the machine learning territory, right? So. NX, uh, as far as I understand, is somewhat similar to NumPy, uh, and basically gives uh, uh, gives has the ability to to work with uh, tensors and uh, the library for tensors, which uh, also has support for uh, compiling down to G or executing the stuff on GPU or slash CPU. So uh, basically, for uh, to to get some decent performance out of it. It's a very interesting direction. I haven't been doing myself anything uh, with machine learning, so I don't want to go. I don't want to say anything wrong here, and therefore I'm not going to go any deeper. And besides, you know, other than code and uh, the podcast and the blog, we don't really know a lot, so we have to see. Yeah, we will, uh, we will but, of uh, course link. Yeah, we will of course link everything. I just want to add real quick that I, I use term vendor unlocking for a reason, because as you said, yes, it, it runs on GPU and uh, it targets a different uh, backend rather than compilation compiling down to Beam, and mm. um, and uh, it but is it can compile down to Beam as well, right? So of course, of course, it runs on CPU uh, and. Um, it runs on uh, GPUs as well, and it and it and it has this different compiler backend, which is a testament to like all these people you know among people who are asking like okay is Elixir production ready whatever it means, there were also people uh, who were asking all the time okay well why why with this weird syntax you know I don't like Ruby it's hipster or something I don't I don't really remember the arguments right, but like it's a testament to how powerful Elixir compiler is because. Basically, what they did it, over the course of a couple of months, they wrote um, basically a, a fusing mechanism to the, just like they have in uh, streams, uh, Elixir uh, streams, um, a library or whatever subset of standard library. I'm not sure where where it lives. Uh, basically, they say it's it's kind of for Haskell crowd. It's kind of like we have uh, by Gabriel Gonzalez the uh, uh, gener generalization of fold when you kind of write your folds. And then you run them once um, and get the result. And, and then the library and the compiler fuse the computations into one execution plan, right? So they basically mm -hmm. wrote this, this fusing logic for, for to, to make sure that we don't copy uh, numerical computations, which is cool. But then they not only did that, they also extended the language in a way, right, to, to support uh, regular uh, fused computations on Beam, uh, which is a kind of regular execution mode. And they added another, another uh, backend 
to run mm -hmm. uh, Elixir on in the span of two, three months. Like this is... And, and this is uh, all done without changing anything in the Elixir itself, right? So yeah. uh, I think there's going to, from what I understand, there's going to be like some very minor change in the next version, but it all, all already runs on the current version. So there was no special support needed in the in the language itself. And this is a testament to what we talked about with macros and everything, how, uh, how actually extensible the language is and which therefore it makes sense that it's stable. I think this was one of the original Jose's goal to make the language extensible such that, you know, he doesn't have to spend too much time just pushing it forward and forward. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So, so yeah, this, this is pretty cool. Yeah, and it also, it also again to Haskell Crowd, it would, uh, it would um, remove the need for committee uh, in a way, right? Okay, you want to have dependent Haskell, you want to have like dependent Elixir, whatever that means with success mm. typings. Sure, just extend it, import it uh, as a library, like to, as an overlay to your compiler, and the, the code is maintainable, readable, and and and. And written on Elixir, you know, on top of things, right? It's it's uh, very mm. very nice. Um, yes, yeah, so, so that's pretty cool. And then you you mentioned NURBS. Uh, I gotta be honest, I didn't really follow uh, the development of NURBS, but it has been around for like I don't know five six years or something like that since it was first introduced. Uh, the general idea, from what I understand, is uh, to be able to run uh, Beam code, so Erlang or Elixir written code on uh, on smaller embedded devices, if you will, like Raspberry Pi, for example, right? And why would you want to do that is uh, also to get uh, better fault tolerance and uh, res general re resilience, right, ha availability, because uh, many times on those smaller devices, you also want to run a software system. You know, it's not like a powerful web server that, I don't know, handles thousands of requests per second, but it is still a piece of software that, that runs and maybe, I don't know, monitors your smart home or that, does whatever else. And you want it to run constantly and uh, you don't really want it to fail completely. And so, uh, and especially because, you know, this stuff can be deployed, uh, reside somewhere remotely, you know, it's hard to access and whatnot. So you, you actually have a, a lot of, uh, you have to pay attention to to make this thing stable, and uh, therefore it makes sense to uh, consider using Beam languages uh, for those kind of things. So, NURBS is basically a platform that, that, from what I understand, gives you the full solution to that. You know, including deployment at some helper libraries and uh, whatnot, so you can. Yeah. Run your... Yeah. As far as I understand, they also have some some sort of dashboards and whatnot. Um, mm. Yeah, but this is, uh, it's important about, when we're thinking about nerves, it's important to understand that it's like very natural also even in terms of, um, like people were thinking about using Erlang in IoT at the moment when IoT became a thing, you know, like uh, we, 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 have, we have to always remember that the past of Erlang is programming phone switches, yeah, so basically it was, you know, IoT because before it was too cool. Um, and uh, I know for sure, I don't know the projects, I don't know if they are open sourced, but I know for sure that there was there is also a drive to to put uh, Erlang on like um, uh, hives of um, um, to, to, to deploy gossip networks of sensors, for example, uh, mm -hmm. so that the information from, from like remote sensors could propagate to command and control um, without having a direct connect connectivity and whatnot. Um, so yeah, uh, I think that uh, I also think that like IoT is very like natural venue for for Erlang to uh, Erlang languages, Elixir, and so on, to be deployed uh, on. Um, yeah, so 
I think that the future is bright. I think that uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, what the community, um, maybe smaller community or broader community, will will do with uh, with typed Erlang versions. Um, yeah, you mentioned that language. Uh, how was it called? Like, it starts with Gleam or something. Yeah, Gleam. Gleam yeah. yeah. So there is Gleam and there is Caramel. I think that those are like two ongoing initiatives. There are a bunch of more that, that were sort of uh, going on and then at some point maybe stopped. The Gleam is, as far as I know, in continuous development. And I recently learned of Caramel, which is also something ML flavored. So yeah, definitely, I think it would be great to get a typed, uh, statically typed uh, language on Beam. Uh, so, you know, I, I have spent a lot of years, you know, working with both static and dynamic typing. And I'm now at this point pretty much convinced that static is better for anything production wise. So it's saying a lot that I'm using exclusively Elixir, which is dynamically typed, uh, you know, because I think that these other other advantages are uh, really uh, also very important. But I would like to see static typing at least, you know, I'm not sure if I would completely go back to that, but uh, for some like critical stuff, more complex stuff, uh, like say you're writing a compiler or something. This is, these are the pieces that I would actually want, definitely want to have uh, proper static support. Uh, so, you know, I can actually reason about it uh, properly. So yeah, I hope that the Gleam or Caramel, and, and then there is actually something which uh, I think WhatsApp is developing. They promised they will release something in November, but that didn't happen. So. Uh, but hopefully it will happen at some point. They are working also on some of typed Erlang, whatever that actually means. Yeah. So we're, we're going to see, you know, but I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm really thinking that this is an important piece that we would have to get on Beam to, you know, truly uh, further propel uh, the adoption. I think a push from, from a huge company is really required because, you know, like even when I started, I was reading this uh, write-ups, uh, about okay, here is here is the proposal to to make Erlang typed, you know, like and then the, I have this phrase that okay, we will have we will have uh, typed Erlang in five years, just when we will have, you know, uh, a general uh, AI in five years. It's always in five years for for for, mm, for ten yeah. years already. And Linux on desktop, right? Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, we actually have a question to to uh, to finish our conversation with. And the question says, with this approach of GPU things that NX has taken, do you think Elixir would be able to complete to compete against Scala capabilities for processing big data? Mm, well, uh, that, that is hard for me to answer. Uh, uh, from what I understand, this is now currently mostly focused on uh, machine learning stuff. Uh, so I, and I guess processing big data would involve that as well. So yeah, I, I guess now that you did you ask about it and I think about it, it, it might, it makes sense, right? So this is something where, uh, it could happen. I think that, uh, really the, the big question is, uh, maturity. Uh, so what is, what is going to be, uh, supported by NX clearly it's like a couple of years behind than anything else. So there, there's some ground at, to be at least a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah, and I would say yeah. I would say that as far as uh, machine learning versus everything else is concerned, um, I think that uh, our first goal with NX or implementers' first goal with NX is to just provide sufficient set of primitives and algorithms 
that are rooted in, in numerical analysis and in statistics to be able to to then you be used to create uh, more complex systems and um, um, as far as big data processing big data is concerned I think that we have to always keep in mind that uh, our, our big data normally um, like it's not always that we can just say okay we 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 will process big data like as uh, like a data pool of of texts or something um, and uh, then load the GPU with uh, with some some text processing things uh, or some indexers uh, they they these things are not always a machine learning based and they're not always mm. kind of boiled down to kind of stuff that TensorFlow is doing, right? So, so for me, it's more the question, okay, how can you, how can you um, actually transform your, your, your data into something with what you can work? And I think that, again, I have not, no idea about what Scala is doing, but I assume that Scala has tools to actually pull the, the 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 signal so to speak from the from the from your data pools and from your big data uh, and I think that the elixir as far as as far as we can as far as I can see, I, I wouldn't be very optimistic that we will have like kind of full stack support for for analysis of, of big data mm. but I mean you know it's, it's at least setting the setting the proper foundation and so it depends on uh how much push will it receive but from what i can tell there is a lot of excitement there so hopefully you know uh we will get to the point where we can have some uh approximation at least uh of what other communities have and uh, something is always better than nothing right and uh, more of that thing is better uh especially much better uh because uh you know it it's uh there, there's less incentive for you to to step outside of elixir and reach for other languages then right yeah, actually, to to close this on a positive note, I, I now thought a, about it a little bit, and I realized that okay, like things that in other languages, like in Haskell, we had conduit, and in, in Scala, I think similar things, which 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 actually address this issue of like syncing the data from my data pool in a concurrent way down to down to like some distilled data set, then we can can kind of reason about or like do some ML or do statistical analysis on. We actually have this in Erlang kind of for free, right? So I kind of revert my revert my uh, answer completely. It's I think that if if we'll have an X, then just Elixir capabilities will be enough to actually do this 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 whole thing. Just because I mean, it's, it, it's, it's, pretty, so it's pretty hard to answer. You know, it's a vague question. What does it mean to to handle big data? You know, that it, it can be handled in a bunch of different ways. Like uh, so, so when it comes to of course some sort of a. Uh, uh, modeling and learning, uh, you know, obviously, as soon as you can do something on GPU, then uh, you have much better capabilities. But other than that, what you mentioned, uh, ingesting the data in a concurrent way and uh, then splitting and slicing it differently, this is definitely possible already without NX, and this is where uh, uh, Beam languages actually excel, you know. Actually, we actually have one more question. Um, let's, let's answer it as well. Um, the question is, how do you see Elixir taking place for big companies' backends? Like, I guess, what's the place of Elixir and big companies' uh, backends? And uh, what's stopping ad its adoption if Phoenix is mature enough? So, like, kind of why, why? Yeah, I'll, uh, yeah I'll, I think I'll start answering, and Sasha might, answer, might, might add something to it. So, like, uh, Elixir, um, I mean, um, I'm, I can't 
we don't see a Facebook uh, internal or WhatsApp internal code bases. But my guess would be that um, they they are using Elixir. It, I don't know for sure. No one knows for sure except for people who are working there. But like they are using Erlang, and there is very little reason to not use Elixir over the past several years if you're using Erlang already. And as Sasha mentioned, interoperability is so high that you know when we're talking about proprietary code bases, we can safely say that if a company is using Erlang, most likely they are also using Elixir. And we have huge companies using uh, Erlang. Um, and maybe Sasha knows some huge companies that are using Elixir uh, specifically, and they're vocal about it. But I, I would say that it was, it actually was how many people learned about Erlang in the first place in like 2008, 2009, 2010, when Facebook uh, did their first rewrite of Messenger to, to Erlang. Uh, and what's stopping this adoption since Phoenix is mature enough? Well, as in my opinion, um, in my opinion, uh, Erlang and Elixir are so much more than just Phoenix. And uh, I think... Uh, when I was when I was preparing for today's uh, interview with Sasha, I was thinking about LiveView, which is their recent feature uh, by Phoenix Framework, which allows uh, people to not write JavaScript but to write to have this kind of functional reactive programming inspired um, approach to do website re like front end re renderings. And I have a feeling when I was thinking, okay, why would I use it? Well, if I have like kind of government customer or something like this, or I'm not making like uh, user-facing applications and I want to keep everything Elixir, um, maybe I'm like some sort of startup that does a web only, then okay, I will use live view and the same kind of goes, to, uh, but otherwise I will not because if I want to have consumer-facing application, of course, I will have to, I will have to think about mobile, about all the, all the horrible reality of, of writing uh, applications for the end user, um, and just like this is um, kind of, and I still can use Elixir for backend, right? Uh, and just the same way in the whole range of problem domains of writing complex systems, uh, Phoenix is not like 100% of, of, of what Elixir brings to the table. So in my opinion, it's it's very hard to 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 answer the second part of your question about okay, what's stopping this adoption since Phoenix is mature just because Facebook uh, or anyone else is not using these languages to do web. They are actually using these languages to build complex resilient systems. If Sasha has something to add, uh, I'm not sure that I understood the question. So can you just repeat uh, what what's the problem? The question is. How do you see Elixir taking place for big companies' backend? So I, I guess that the question is like, where uh -huh. does Elixir fit in big companies' backends? Okay, yeah, 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 that's a difficult one. Uh, so uh, I don't really see it happen uh, because typically companies are inert uh, that way, and you know if they have something that is working, why why should they really switch to something else, right? So what? Possibly can happen, and this really depends on the company's culture. Is uh, some pieces, you know, might be uh, might be implemented, some new tools on the side, and I think that there are such scenarios already, but I can't think of something off the top of my head because uh, my memory is pretty bad, so I purge my my brain. But uh, uh, Elixir uh, on the Elixir side, there are there are some use cases of different companies, and as far as I remember, there were like uh, some that were actually you know using uh, Elixir. 
uh, like for different kinds of tools. And there are, of course, then companies which are all in, in Elixir. Uh, of the big ones, I don't know, the only one that I can think of at this moment is Bleacher Report. So that's one of the bigger that has been using. And then, of course, WhatsApp, of course, obviously uses uh, Erlang. I don't know if they do any Elixir, but uh, definitely Erlang is there. So, yeah, in, to, to answer that point in general, I think it's kind of, you know, I personally think it's going to be hard to uh, just uh, see, not likely to see that a big company that already has established infrastructure which go to Elixir you know, just because, right? So I, I don't see that happen. Uh, obviously, if a company grows organically, then uh, that could happen if it started originally with Elixir. Other than that, you know, uh, I don't see Phoenix as any sort of a problem uh, to that. Phoenix is pretty mature. I think it's pretty stable. Uh, and, you know, I would recommend using it if you have to do something web-facing, uh, you know, pretty convenient and also very flexible. So. Um, yeah, it's basically based on Cowboy that has been, you know, used around, has been around for like what ten years or so. So, yeah, yeah, and 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 what what also is great about Phoenix is that you don't have like that Phoenix is not just one thing, right? You can just use subset of Phoenix like plugs, and uh, mm, this is for precisely. what I'm doing, right? Because I I don't have time to learn a framework, but I have time to learn like kind of approach to like request processing so i just use the the stuff i understand from it right mm. it's very modular so really you can pick whatever you want and uh like even though it proposes some conventions you can even take different kind of paths which is what we did at, uh very big things we make some changes to that uh the way we figure it suits us so it's very actually unopinionated i would say yeah yeah well i guess um I guess that that will be it. Thank you very much, Sasha, for taking your time, taking so much of your time, actually, over over an hour. Um, and uh, yeah, I hope to see you in real life soon, hopefully. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Jon, for inviting me. And uh, yeah, this was fun, you know. And I, I wasn't even aware that so much time has passed. So anyway, uh, hope that it was interesting for others. And uh, personally, of course, uh, I'm looking forward to the day when. Uh, the COVID is going to be the thing of the past and, you know, we can see each other in real life. <laughs>